We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Now, as we've been journeying through the book of Ecclesiastes, we found ourselves in this portion of the book where he's specifically addressing this issue of, of wisdom. And this wisdom comes in the context of being in a world of hevel. If you're new with us, the, the word hevel is the word he, we interpret in our text here as vanity, and, uh, and, and it means this fleeting or this vapor or this smoke. It's, it's this idea that life under the sun is something you can't ever really grab a hold of. You can't hold on to it. You can't control it. You can't manipulate it. For all of your efforts to even understand it, it's fleeting from you. And so in the midst of this, he's been calling us to this experiment or to this journey of finding wisdom. And, and last week, he unpacked for us in, in a series of Proverbs um, areas that we are to look for wisdom for in our lives. Let me, let me give you a recap of last week's text at the beginning of chapter 7. First, he said in response to chapter 6, when he asked the question, who can know what is good, for no one knows what tomorrow brings, in response to the understanding that you have no idea what tomorrow actually brings, he still encouraged us to pursue wisdom. Don't give up in trying to gain wisdom. Make it be a pursuit of your life, despite the fact that you actually don't know what tomorrow brings. Secondly, he told us that wisdom is often learned in some of the places that we try to avoid the most in life, in sorrow and death, in rebuke, and in the present rather than in the past. And third, he gave us this gem of a question in verse 13. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Right? If God is ultimately sovereign, if God is above the sun, and God is in control of all of the disquiets and the delights of life, then who can make straight what he has made crooked? And, and if you remember, the answer to that question was not no one. The answer to that question was not you. God can make it straight. And God has promised to make straight all that has been made crooked. This is the hope that we have in this life under the sun, that despite all our efforts to straighten what is crooked and our inability to do so, God has promised one day he will. One day he will. So we keep looking to that with hope. Now Solomon the preacher is calling us to embrace this reality of hevel under the sun. In this life under the sun, we can't make life straight. We can't avoid hurt. We can't avoid loss. We can't control the brokenness of our world or our personal lives. And we can grow, and we can learn, and we can trust more, but our attempts, any attempts, to, to build walls and structures and plans that would avoid the disquiets and the delights of life will ultimately prove to fail. We can't control it. We have to embrace this this, this inability to control life because life is fleeting. The good things are fleeting, the bad things are fleeting, the hardships are fleeting, the joys are fleeting. Today is fleeting. Solomon the preacher also in this section of this text and throughout this book is calling us to embrace faith. In the midst of this hevel, we are to have faith in the God who is not under the sun. Faith in the God who is above the sun, who knows the beginning and the end. He knows tomorrow. And so when he makes a promise about tomorrow, we can trust it because he knows what tomorrow brings. In fact, he is the one who is causing the wind to blow tomorrow. We're to have faith in this God who is sovereign over all things and has promised to make all things new. 
And today in this text, Solomon continues teaching about this pursuit of wisdom and this embrace of a life that is hevel and about trusting God. So let's look at verse 14 as he does this. He says in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon calls us to joy and to consideration, to a joyfulness and to a consideration. He calls us first to a joyfulness in the day of prosperity, a joyfulness in the day of prosperity. Church, can I just encourage you in something? Don't feel bad when you're in a prosperous season of life. Don't, don't feel bad when you're experiencing prosper, prosperity. Solomon has taught us throughout this book not to make prosperity our chief goal, right? It's not the end all that we're chasing. To chase prosperity as if prosperity will bring you ultimate joy and will be the the security that you need in life. To chase it for these sorts of things is like chasing the wind. You might catch it for a season, but then it's hevel and it slips through your fingers and it's gone tomorrow. You can't, can't hold on to it. And so he's taught us not to embrace it as our chief end or as our ultimate, but that doesn't mean you don't have joy in it when it comes. And sometimes within our, our Christian cultures, we, like, we fear prosperity in the sense of we, we feel embarrassed when it comes. We feel embarrassed when we're in a good season. We feel embarrassed to celebrate something that's happy that has happened. We, we get a raise. We get a new job. We, we have a child. And we're like, man, I, I can't really celebrate this because there's people around me who are suffering in adversity right now. So I can't, I can't really just express joy in my prosperity when others around me are suffering in adversity. And Solomon is going to celebrate. Find joy in your seasons of prosperity in your days of prosperity, in your moments of prosperity, right? And and here, the the idea of prosperity is not simply financial, though that's a piece of it, right? But but a a life and a season of prosperity is like being in a place where you're, you're prospering, right? There's good things happening. And this happens sometimes in big chunks of your life, and it happens sometimes in just little moments of your life. Yesterday afternoon, I was experiencing what I would call within my soul adversity, And then my son said, hey, can we go play catch? And so I put down what I was doing that was causing me adversity. I got up from the Arkansas Razorback football game, which was causing me adversity. And I went outside with my son with a football, and I threw it kind of at dusk when the the sun's breaking through the trees kind of over the yard next to us. And there we threw the ball, and we laughed, and we chased each other, and it was a moment of prosperity. It was that moment when your heart has something to rejoice in. And he goes, find joy in those moments. Take pleasure in them. But then he also tells us to consider in adversity, to take consideration in adversity. When you face seasons of adversity, moments of adversity, um, relationships of adversity in life, take consideration. Specifically, take consideration that God has created both the days of prosperity and the days of adversity. So, so often what we want to do is avoid joy and happiness and thankfulness in the days of prosperity. And we want to avoid um, faith and trust and hope in the days of adversity. We spiral into this place of, 
um, distrust and this place of hopelessness. And he goes, listen, no, pause for a moment. Take the time you need when you're in a season of adversity. Take the time you need to consider God is still there. God is the author of both, and they're both, therefore, a gift to us. Oftentimes, the season of adversity don't feel like a gift until far after them. Right? It's that time when you were walking through that in your early 20s in marriage, and then when you get into your 40s, you look back and you go, wow, that was actually that. That seemed like all of life was going to fall apart, and that was actually a gift. Look at the beauty that came from that. You look back on your childhood at adversity and at brokenness, and you go, there, there were moments in that where I saw God's grace, and there's a gift there. And church, I, I want you to understand in here, like, like, there is, within our congregation, there's what we might refer to as, like, adversity. It's like me jokingly talking about the Razorback game yesterday. But in our congregation, there are deep, true, heart-heavy, soul-crushing adversities going on. Like, can't get out of bed in the morning because you're being crushed by the weight of pain that is upon you type of adversities. And to just rush through this part and go, God is the creator of both, can feel really unloving and uncaring and confusing in that. Here's the hope we have in this. If God is the creator of it, then he is present in it. And he is in control, and he has not left you there. God being the creator of both the days of prosperity and the days of adversity does not mean that he is unloving or that he doesn't like you or that he's even apathetic to you when the adversity comes. The scriptures are full of promises that he loves his children. That he is for you, not against you. That he will bring you through it and out of it and he will make it straight as we talked about last week. That straightness might not come today. But it will come one day. Whether this life or the next, it comes. Joy and prosperity. And consider an adversity. God is the author of both. Look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Solomon goes, I've looked at everything. I've lived. I've witnessed. I've watched. I've taken note. And I've seen it all, people. And what continually amazes me is that there is people who live in righteousness. Right? Their life is a pursuit of godliness, and yet they die young. And there are people who live as absolute fools in wickedness. And sometimes they live long, and sometimes it's even their wickedness that prolongs their life. They live long by doing wicked towards other people. Right? Some of you have felt like one who's been pursuing the Lord and have been crushed in life under the wickedness of another person. And in the midst of it, they appear to be flourishing while you're suffering greatly. 
Look at verse 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Decently confusing verses. Don't be too righteous. Why would you want to die? Don't be a fool. Why would you want to die? We have to be careful not to interpret what he doesn't mean here. He's not telling us that we are, should not become too godly of a person. But also, don't do too much evil. Just kind of live life in the middle. Not too wicked, not too good. The happiest place is just to kind of find a good balance between the two. It's not what he's saying. What Solomon is saying is, is in a way, he's responding to with two imperatives to verses 14 and 15. Imperatives are instructions, commands, things to do. He's going, let me give you two action points on verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, he mentions that there's both prosperity and adversity, that we all experience both of these, and he says, what I've witnessed is sometimes the righteous perish and the fool prospers. So let me give you two responses to this, or two responses not to go to, and the way to walk through this. In verses 16 through 18, he addresses the person who falls into a ditch on either side of this road of wisdom. On one ditch on one side is the person that expects his righteousness and his wisdom to earn him long, easy lives of prosperity. This is the person that thinks that the the better I behave, the more godly I am, the more spiritual I look, the more moral a life that I embrace, the more righteous I am, the more right I have to expect God to bless me. That God would withhold seasons of adversity, that he would only give me these seasons of prospering, that my life would be long because of my righteousness. In fact, their type of righteousness is actually a false righteousness. It is a righteousness in an attempt to manipulate God. Since adversity and prosperity both come, let me be as good as I can so that God will give me more prosperity and less adversity. That's the righteousness he's referring to. It's this false idea of righteousness. This manipulative righteousness. Now, the ditch on the other side is the person who thinks that um, you, because, both righteous, because both prosperity and adversity come, and because sometimes the, the righteous, the godly, like dies, and sometimes the, the foolish and the wicked lives, I might as well just be wicked because there's no immediate or eternal consequences. And he goes, that's the ditch on the other side. So one side, let me be as righteous as I can to manipulate God to treat me better. And on the other side, let me be as foolish and wicked as I can because it doesn't really matter what I do, I still might suffer adversity. So I might as well have fun in the midst of this with my sin. And his response to that is that the one who fears the Lord comes out of both of these. The one who fears God doesn't fall into the ditch on the left of righteousness or the ditch on the right of wickedness. 
They actually instead stay on the road of wisdom, reach out their hand, and trust God to lead them to what's further down the road. I think it's important for us to see the word fear here. The one who fears the Lord does this. The one who fears the Lord comes out of the ditch of righteousness and the ditch of wickedness and trusts the Lord. Because the word fear here means fear. We love to see the word fear and to spiritualize it as only reverence, only respect, only worship. But here it literally means be afraid. Fear of God does not mean that we don't trust in God. The fear of God doesn't mean that we don't love God or receive love from God, that he's not loving towards us. Fear of God does not mean that God is not good and therefore we have to fear that he's wicked and evil to us. The fear of God means that you recognize his sovereign power, his control, that though you can't control the hevel of life, he does. That though your life is chasing the wind, he controls the wind that both seasons of prosperity and adversity come from him and it should strike within us an actual fear of him. That both false righteousness and wickedness leads to death. And it should strike fear. He's the one who judges our righteousness and our wickedness and it should lead us to fear his judgment and to walk in trust of him. You can fear him and trust him at the same time. You fear his sovereign strength and you trust his good love. The word literally means fear. Let me give you an example from scripture. In Mark chapter four, Jesus is asleep in the boat. The disciples are in the boat and the storm comes. The storm starts rocking the boat, the winds and the rains and the waves and they're afraid they're going to sink and to die. And they wake him up. And Jesus wakes up and he stands up and he speaks up. And when he does, the wind and the rain stop. The waves go still. And Mark 4 says this, they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this that even the seas and the winds obey him? This is the fear we're talking about here. Who is this God that even the adversities and the prosper, um, prosper, prosperous moments obey him? Who is this God that judges both the righteous and the wicked? Who is this God? And it strikes fear in us that causes us to come out of the ditch of false righteousness and out of the ditch of our wickedness and reach out our hand and trust him on the road to wisdom. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Wisdom gives strength to the man, to a man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Right, more than your authorities can give you, more than the government can give you, more than a powerful people can give you strength. Wisdom gives you the strength. The question is, oh, what is this specific wisdom he's referring to? In what way does wisdom give you strength? And what, what wisdom are you referring to that gives me this strength? He's going to unpack it for us. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good 
and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Then he says in 21, do not take heart, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servants cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Here's his wisdom. None of us are without sin. And and here when he says the righteous, he's not using that in a sense of like um, sarcasm. Who thinks they're actually righteous and hasn't sinned? He's going, no, who, who, who is righteous and yet is without sin? Who is a godly person and yet still has no sin? And so in in a way for us to conceptualize this, we could stop and we could go, okay, who's the most godly person that I know? When I think of every relationship in my life, who is it that I look to and go, that's the most godly person I know? And then Solomon goes, their life is full of sin. They look really godly to you, but their life is full of sin. Their actions, their words, Their heart is full of sin. There's no one who's without sin. This is a common problem for all of mankind. In a way, what Solomon does for us here in verses 14 through 19 is he says, listen, who can understand the ways of God? Right? God... God brings adversity and he brings prosperity and it doesn't matter if you're righteous or if you're foolish, those things don't actually manipulate God's response to you. Who can understand the ways of God? He's beyond our understanding. To understand God is hevel. And now he goes, you know what? Who can understand man? You can't wrap your mind around man either. Man's heart is not understandable. It's confusing. It's complex. He's about to say it's deep. All men are sinners. And he says, do not take heart to the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So church, listen, it is really, really easy to be offended by another's actions or words. And it's really hard to take responsibility for offending. It's really easy to feel completely flabbergasted that someone else sinned. Right, to just be like, I can't believe they sinned. How, how could they sin? But it's also really easy to go, man, look at their sin. Because, but do you stop and consider your own words and your own actions and your own sin? In fact, let's investigate your own heart, he says. How much more confusing are you? One commentator said of this verse, there is no need to press for judgment against every sinful word said about us. Right, the, the idea here is, hey, you hear, if you constantly listen to what other people are saying, you're going to hear them say something bad about you. And when you hear someone say something bad about you, is the response not, hey, hold up, why are you saying something bad about me? (laughs) Why would you do that? Who gives you the right to say that about me? You don't know me. And he goes, you keep pressing. You're going to hear something bad about you, something even sinful towards you. And who among you have not said something sinful about someone else? 
the heart is complex. Man is complex. We're all sinners. My friend Dave Becker has said on many occasions, on my worst day, left to my own devices and unchecked by the Spirit, I am capable of my worst nightmare. I can do things I would have never thought possible. On my worst day, left to myself, I am more capable of my worst nightmare than I could ever imagine. Do you honestly believe that about yourself? None of us are immune from sin, from foolishness. Verse 23 through 24. All of this I have tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep and very deep. Who can find it out? I've spent myself looking for wisdom. Can I tell you the secret? It's far away from me. I haven't found it. I've spent my whole life chasing this. I've done all these experiments I've told you about. I've used all my resources looking at it. I've studied mankind, and I can't figure people out. I can't figure God out. This seems too deep for me to even understand. I can't understand prosperity and adversity. I can't understand understand righteousness and wickedness. I can't understand wisdom and foolishness. I can't even understand why some people say the things they say about me. For all the efforts of my life, I can't understand. Understanding is heaven. It's slipping through my fingers. Verse 25 through 29. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God has made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. Now to understand this passage, which again is confusing in and of itself, almost sounds like he's like attacking women here for a moment. To, to understand this passage, we have to understand a few terms that he uses and an imagery that he uses. One of the terms that he uses in verses 25, 27, and 29 is the word scheme. He's trying to understand the scheme of things. He's trying to make sense of things, the pattern of things, the way that things work. The picture he gives is of an accountant who's trying to make all the numbers make sense. These are the numbers that are coming in. I'm looking at the numbers and I can't make sense of the numbers. And he's trying to figure out what has made the numbers make sense the way that they are going. Or the strategist who's trying to make, figure out the right moves to make for the right strategy to move forward. He set out to figure out this scheme of life. He wants to know how prosperity and adversity works. How can he control control them? 
He wants to know how righteousness and wickedness works. How can I control them? He wants to know how wisdom and foolishness works. How can I control them? He wants to know how the heart of man and man's sinfulness works so that he can control it. And he uses the word found. Found is in verse 27. It's three times in verse 28. And it's again in verse 29. Found here is like the accountant who found the scheme. Right? He found out what the scheme was, what the missing numbers were that makes everything make sense. He's found. It found can be understood here as understanding. Right? He's come to understanding. He's found this understanding of the situation. And then in addition to these terms, there's this imagery, this imagery of the woman. All throughout wisdom literature, Solomon has referred to um, two women, Lady Folly, and Lady Wisdom. And here he's referring to Lady Folly. Now, I think it would probably be safe to have in mind that he probably has specific, a specific woman in his mind. After all, he has 700 wives and concubines. If there's foolishness to be found in a woman, he has found it. And if there's foolishness to be found in his heart towards women, he has found it for sure. So perhaps there's real-life scenarios playing in his mind, but the image that we get here is the same image he gives us throughout other um, wisdom literature, Lady Folly. Solomon is not randomly, therefore, giving us advice about how, giving men advice about how to find a godly woman, right? Though this is applicable to that. But he's telling all of us, men and women alike, to be on guard against Lady Folly and wickedness. He says, listen, I've found something that's, that's more bitter than death itself. What's, bitter than more, more, what's more bitter than death itself is the arms of Lady Folly who seduces and entraps and takes prisoner of a sinful man or a sinful woman who's not walking in the strength of the Spirit. Lady Folly is far more seductive than you realize. She whisks us away into the ditch of false righteousness, and she whisks us away into the ditch of wickedness. She takes us down the road of foolishness, and she entraps us, and she holds us. Be on guard, he says. As Myers says about the traps of Lady Folly, he says, everyone is vulnerable, specifically the one who considers himself invulnerable. On guard. We're all vulnerable to Lady Folly. Verse 27 through 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find out the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly. But I have not found one man among a thousand, I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He says, listen, I've, I've done all the math I can do. I've, I've ran all the numbers. I've done all the research. I've, I've pushed through every scenario possible, and I can't understand the ways of men. I can't understand our heart. I mean, give me a thousand men, and I might be able to understand one of them. I couldn't understand a single woman among those thousand, right? Which can we just pause the tension for a moment and laugh at that? Like, what he's saying is this, like, humanity is very confusing. It's, I can't understand it. 
Maybe I could understand one man out of a thousand. The opposite sex is even more confusing to me. You add sin into the heart and folly into the heart, and there's no telling what man will do. There's no telling what they'll do. Man's heart is confusing. One author said, like a clerk or an accountant, the pastor runs his finger down the inventory of a man's life, item by item, one by one, to look for a pattern, a reason, a comprehensive accounting for why this person does what they do, and yet it eludes him. Why? Because sin is insane. Sin is insane. It causes us to do things that we can't even imagine doing. And all of us are vulnerable to Lady Folly leading us down that path. Solomon sums it up in verse 29 by saying, This alone I have found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God God made us right. He made us without sin. He made us righteous. He made us to live in wisdom. Doggone it, have we not sought out every scheme we could possibly chase to try to figure out how to control our own lives. The author, the preacher, Solomon, he goes, listen, you can't understand the ways of God. You can't even understand your own simple heart. It's all hevel. It's all hevel. So in a way, what he's saying is, chase wisdom, but realize this. True wisdom is when you realize you can't control God and, or even understand yourself. That's true wisdom. True wisdom is not figuring out how to control yourself. It's not figuring out how to make all the right moves. It's not knowing what is right and what is wrong. It's not knowing how you can manipulate God. True wisdom is going, I can't understand God. I'm not in control. He is. I can't even understand myself. I'm so capable of sin. My life is riddled with it. And so we humbly walk in trust of God with our hand reached out, as he says in this text. Lead me. Lead me. I can't do this on my own. Let me give you six pastoral charges. I promise they're quick. So you took a deep breath. Six pastoral charges from chapter seven. First, seek wisdom by embracing sorrow, receiving rebuke, and living in the present with both its disquiets and its delights, its adversities and its prospers. Second, be joyful in seasons of prosperity and consider the ways of God in seasons of adversity. God has made both. Both are a gift to you. Third, stop trying to manipulate God with your false righteousness. And stop living in careless wickedness as if it has no immediate or eternal consequence for you. Repent of both. Confess both. Come out of both and walk in trust of God. Fourth, don't be surprised when people sin. 
even when they sin against you. Instead, consider how simple man's heart is, including your own, and be on guard. Because Lady Folly is far more seductive than we give her credit for. Be on guard towards sin. Fifth, true wisdom comes when you realize that for all of your efforts, you don't understand God or man. The embrace of wisdom will drive you to trust God's plan for you. So embrace wisdom by trusting God's plan for you. The good and the bad days. Sixth, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Your heart is more sinful than you know. Your dangerous is more, or your foolishness is more dangerous than you know. Your false righteousness is more deadly than you know. Lady Folly is more seductive than you know. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You, you need his perfect life because no matter how righteous you are, you still have sin. And, and you need his sacrificial death because without it, you are sentenced to eternal death. You need his um, victorious resurrection because without it, you're still dead in your sins. You need his coming return because until then, we continue to be tempted by Lady Folly and by the sin that is within us to chase the wind that is under the sun. We need Jesus to look to him. If there's anything this passage tells us is you're not enough in and of yourself. You can't even understand yourself. You need Jesus. Today we come to the communion table as we do every week. We come to dine with the God who is above the sun, not because we've mastered righteousness and earned our way to this table, not because we've acquired enough wisdom to buy our way to this table, not because we've avoided foolishness or wickedness. Our hearts are more foolish and more wicked than we could possibly even understand. Today we come to this table in joyfulness. We come to this table because this table is a place of prosperity for us. In the midst of all of the adversity out there, every Sunday we come in and we have a moment of prosperity right here. Being reminded of the goodness and the grace and the gift of God to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And so we come to the table in joy because we come to the table and take in the Lord's prospering today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come take this. Come be joyful with us. Celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, our invitation to you is to stay in your seat. Don't come take this. There's no joy in this for you. It's just a religious act. Instead, take Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus and his broken body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Today, do so and find hope in the midst of all this hevel. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for this word to us. Help us to look to you, to be on guard to our sin, to trust you and not ourselves. Protect us from the foolishness of false righteousness and the foolishness of wickedness. We are so vulnerable to our own 
sinfulness. We need you. Jesus, protect us. And today when we fall to Lady Folly, draw us back with your kindness to revel in the prosperity of your grace again. We need that too. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.